Welcome! I'm Suresh Rao, Artistic Director and Co-Founder of the Indian Summer Festival, and we're glad to share this event with you. Indian Summer Festival's podcast series was recorded at ISF 2020. In response to the global pandemic, our 10th anniversary edition moved online with 10 specially curated events. From Grammy Award-winning musicians to emerging poets, Nobel Prize-winning economists to visionary environmental warriors, this year's programming spanned literary dialogues, intellectual debates, musical performances, and interactive visual arts experiences. I'd like to thank a few institutions for standing by us in a difficult time and helping us to continue to present outstanding artists and serve our loyal and growing audience. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and the University of British Columbia, our emerging artist sponsor, RBC, music series partner, Creative BC, our funders, the Government of Canada, the City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, Province of BC and the BC Arts Council, and of course, our media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio. Welcome to the global edition of 5x15. 5x15 is a speaker series that originated in London. Featuring speakers like Salman Rushdie, Gloria Steinem, Ben Okri, and Brian Eno, the series was quick to captivate. From there, it spread to New York and Milan, and Indian Summer Festival has hosted the only Canadian iteration of 5x15 every year. In the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, when global cooperation is needed more than ever, we come together to present a special global edition curated and hosted jointly by Eleanor O'Keefe, co-founder of 5x15, and myself. Speaking powerfully with their fingers on the pulse of the current moment and informed by our complex histories are Ben Okri, Anita Anand, Sanjay Kak, Marianne Nicholson, Azar Raskin, and Kritika Pandey. 5x15 Global Edition is presented in partnership with 5x15 Stories. Hello and welcome to Indian Summer Festival and this special global edition of 5x15, which we're thrilled to present in partnerships with our friends at 5x15 Stories. And now I'd like to introduce my co-host and dear friend, Eleanor O'Keefe, who co-founded uh, 5x15 and the reason why Indian Summer Festival has been presenting this format for the last five years. Eleanor was one of the early directors of the Jaipur Literature Festival, she co-founded the Palestine Literature Festival, and she's the editorial director of COGX, the world's biggest tech event, which closed just last week with 1,200 speakers from around the world. So I have no idea why she agreed to do this um, when her brain must surely be melted. She's frighteningly impressive. Please welcome Eleanor. Suresh, thank you. Eleanor, I'm so glad we, we get to do this together. Um, Suresh, this is so, I'm so glad to be doing this. It's really, really exciting. And I have to say, you left out an absolutely crucial part of my bio, is that I'm Canadian. Uh, and of course, uh, we grew up in, in Ireland and emigrated to Canada and then went off to live in India. So this, and I am currently speaking from the upstairs room of my parents' house uh, back in West Cork in Ireland. So um, this is a very exciting event also because it brings together many different strands of my own personal journey. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm actually really um, delighted to be here 
in person virtually um, because that's an exciting thing to happen uh, when we've been collaborating from afar for a long time. I know. It's, it's so nice to get to do this together. I know. It's so great to be in Vancouver. <laughs> shall, we say, shall, we, shall we go around and say a quick hello to all the wonderful speakers who've joined us um, into this virtual green room so that everyone can see them for a second before we get into the order of things? I think that would be lovely. Thank, yeah, thank you all so much for being here. Um, and I think now um, I'll leave it to Eleanor really to, to introduce our first speaker. I'm, I'm so thrilled having been such a massive fan, like I'm sure many people have um, over the years of, of Ben Okri and what he stands for every single time he says something in the world. So Eleanor, all yours. Um, ben, it's uh, such, I mean, a great pleasure and it's always an honor to have you with us. Um, and, and even though we have worked together a number of times in the past, I have to say that that, that pleasure of introducing you never diminishes at all. We're speaking this evening, well, this evening, if you're in Ireland or the UK or in India, about language and how language is the old growth forest of the mind. There are a few people, I think, who have used language to such great effect to uh, really tap into a moment and a public mood as effectively as, as our first speaker this evening. He is the author of uh, The Famished Road, which won the Booker Prize in 1991. And he has since gone on to write a huge number of extraordinary books. His most recent is a volume of stories called Prayer for the Living. And his latest novel is The Freedom Artist. Ben's work has been translated into 25 different languages. He has numerous honorary doctorates. He's the vice president of the English Center for International Pen. He lives in London. He hails from Nigeria. And uh, I think, Ben, I just want to mention too that in 2017, there was a terrible tragedy in London uh, in the Grenfell Tower. And your poem uh, on the back of that touched so many millions of people and it really made sense of a, a very traumatic moment for many of us who were close to that terrible tragedy. Um, we're so pleased that you are with us today because you're also going to be reading a recent piece which again tries to use words to make sense of another terrible and broad uh, tragedy. So um, if we were all live, I'd ask you to put your hands together. Otherwise, just beam at your screen and um, welcome Ben Okri. Thank you very much, uh, Eleanor, um, and your uh, legendary 5 by 15 uh, series. And Sirish, uh, a real pleasure to be working with you all on uh, the Indian Summers Festival. Um, it's, um, uh, it's been an incredible summer for all sorts of reasons. And um, I'm going to be reading uh, a piece called On I Can't Breathe, which was uh, my response to the murder of George Floyd. And the aspect that fascinated me the most, um, apart from the, the, the tragic nature of it and the way in which it tells us about the status, the condition of race in America today and around the world, actually, um, was was language, and this festival is uh, one of its one of its uh, 
key starting points is uh, the idea of a uh, uh, river of river of language, and I was just interested in just three words um, from from George, the tragedy of George Floyd, and that's what my piece is is about. It's called "I Can't Breathe." Never in my life has the case of such visible injustice moved white and black people, moved them as human beings. There have been protests all across America, but there have been huge protests all across the world. Why has the murder of George Floyd struck such a profound chord in us? Perhaps the nine weeks of lockdown purified people's sense of justice and freedom. Also, it was the first big emotional news people heard coming out tentatively from the lockdown, and it hit us like a sledgehammer. But maybe it was the phrase, I can't breathe. The consonance of the phrase with the very root of our pandemic fears is uncanny. The phrase linked the pandemic with the ubiquitous and implacable nature of institutional racism. I can't breathe. And people were prepared to risk coronavirus just so they could express their protest. There have been many times in the past when black people have been gagged, strangled, and choked by the police in America and even here in Britain. The names of Black people who have died unjustly at the hands of police are legion. The policemen have mostly gotten off scot-free. What happened to George Floyd isn't new. I can't breathe in any other time would have sparked riots, but not the crossover protest on this universal scale. This time is different. This time it is epochal. Language taps into primal fears. We don't really empathize when we understand. People understand racism. It isn't difficult to understand. But still people don't behave as if they understand. Perhaps we empathize best when we can enter into the condition. I can't breathe suddenly equates racism with the deprivation of air, which is what it always was. Previously, we saw racism, if we saw it at all, as a diminishment of a person's humanity. But that was always too vague. I can't breathe goes beyond saying that you are depriving me of freedom, of humanity, of respect. It says, you are depriving me of the very right to air itself. I can't breathe. We need a new language to express the fundamental clarity of what happens when people are demonized, excluded, deprived, oppressed, and murdered because of the color of their skin. We need a new language for that condition. Only extreme terminal agony could have expressed the very heart of what racism does when George Floyd, whispering, said, I can't breathe. Not even Shakespeare, Walt Whitman, James Baldwin, or Toni Morrison, at their most eloquent, came out with anything as simple in the genius of his truth as, 
I can't breathe. Maybe it should be the phrase that people who are oppressed should use. It should become the mantra of oppression. Maybe every time the police stop you in your car for no other reason than that you are black, you should say, I can't breathe. Maybe every time people cross the road in the evenings, when they see you, a placard should be held up that says, I can't breathe. Maybe when jobs are denied you, deserved promotions elude you, or when the police come to windrush, deport you, the moment should be recorded on your phone while saying, I can't breathe. Maybe the true response to all the subtle and deadly forms that racism takes should have a new code. I can't breathe. The truth is that I can't breathe hints at the apocalypse of human values. When George Floyd said, I can't breathe, and still the police officer applied the chokehold to his windpipe, it was declared in that moment that the human life means nothing in that country. That's where the apocalypse begins. I can't breathe will become the condition of the world. We ignore the deadly warnings of climate catastrophe. It took the worldwide outcry of the Me Too movement to signal to the world that millions of women are in situations where they can't breathe. Boris Johnson on his respirator, lingering for days between life and death, perhaps, perhaps knew the meaning of I can't breathe. Across the world right now, we are asking ourselves what it means to be human. When people say they are colorblind, they're being naive. They're in sweet denial. History is not colorblind. Examine the history of slavery and colonialism and genocide. Education is not colorblind. Otherwise, the objective facts of what a people have done and what have been done to a people would be as much a part of the curriculum as the death of Socrates, the plays of Shakespeare, and basic mathematics. Culture is not colorblind. Otherwise, the history of art would include the rock sculpture of Zimbabwe, the radical interventions of David Hammonds, and the paintings of Ben Ewan. Maybe the real trouble is color deficiency. We know what racism is. It is, finally, the reduction of the human race to the validity of one race. Put another way, it is saying that there is a hierarchy of being human, that some are more human than others, or that some are less. The moment you think, even unconsciously, that one race is superior to another, that is the beginning of murder. It is the beginning of genocide. By small degrees, what is innocently thought of as minor variations of a human hierarchy degenerates into allowing one set of people to suffer and endure conditions that another set of people would not tolerate for themselves. Racism is a human problem. It can be solved. All it takes is facing the truth that many of us have been lied to about history and about other people's humanity. All it takes is realizing that to passively sanction the diminishment of anyone's humanity on any ground is to sanction your own diminishment too. This really isn't rocket science. Racism is a failure to be human. This lack of empathy is part of the problem that is destroying our world. It extends not just to humans, but to other species and to the planet as a whole. 
That police officer who pressed his knee on George Floyd's neck snuffed out one life but lit a universal fire. It is deeply moving that the world responded not to the death of a great man or woman, but to the murder of one of the Earth's poor and seemingly insignificant people. We know what to do. We must tear out the unconscious racism in our spirit. We must insist on the human rights of all peoples. We must let people live their freedom and their possibilities within the law. This is a great moment in the life of humanity and it is rich with the possibilities for change. Maybe I Can't Breathe will begin the real change that our world so desperately needs. Let's all breathe. Ben, thank you. That was really, really beautiful um, and profound and so much there was so much to think about in there. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, there's really uh, so much work to be done and so much reflection and introspection. And um, I, I know the, the the road ahead is long and, and the task is, is very great, but we're really grateful for you for joining us this evening, but even more broadly for, for sharing your thoughts and sharing your encouragement. Um, I, I think that's a, a great, a great thing to be able to, to give to us as, uh, as humanity is encouragement to do better and, uh, and join forces. Um, so Ben, let me, let me thank you. Um, I, I were so grateful that you made the time to join us with your beautiful backdrop, which shows the riches of your mind too, uh, not just your bookshelves. Um, Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Ben. Right. Take care. Thank you, Suresh. So our our next um, our next speaker, actually, I thought that was a well. It's always a hard act to follow Ben Okri, but. Um, our next speaker is Anita Anand, and I know that she's very well capable, but I thought um, that speaking about a present day outrage and injustice was actually a perfect uh, setting, uh, scene setter for her talk. Anita Anand, is she's a word, an award-winning journalist. I, living most of the time in London, uh, have the great pleasure of listening to her um, host a radio show on BBC Radio 4 called Any Answers, which um, is a, a show in which the public can call in and um, demand answers for the public, which is a great exercise, I think, in, in public democracy. And, and she hosts it with extraordinary aplomb. Um, but she's not just a journalist, she's also an author. She's written um, three books. First one was Sophia, Princess Suffragette and Revolutionary, which told the wonderful story of uh, Princess Sophia. Um, the Indian princess. She's just also published uh, The Patient Assassin, a true tale of massacre, revenge, and the Raj, which tells the story of one individual's 20-year quest 
for justice after a terrible, terrible outrage. Um, again, please give a very warm welcome to Anita Anand. Elena, thank you so much. And thank you to Suresh. And um, thank you to all of you who are listening and watching today. Um, I'm speaking to you from a very windy London. You might hear the, the, the wind blowing down the chimney at any moment. So apologies for that. Um, I was really very touched. This is almost like a relay race, really. Um, then the incomparable Ben Oakry talking about I can't breathe, about George Floyd, about Black Lives Mattering. Um, and if you look at the news here in the UK, it would seem to be really quite fixated on statues, statues of great white men who have lived in the past. And a microscope is now being applied to episodes in history, colonialism. How do we teach it? How do we learn about it? What do we do with the people who represented it? I know one thing. We have to know about the things that happened. And I'm going to give you one glimpse of one day in colonial India on a day when black lives did not matter at all. Um, so let me tell you the city that we're talking about. It is a city in the north of India called Amritsar. And most of you will have heard of it. And you may have heard of it because of this building here, the Golden Temple. Amritsar was the home of the, the most holy shrine to the Sikhs. This date is in 1919. So a time when Indian soldiers had come back from fighting in a foreign war, a war where they were told that they were fighting for king and country, a war where they were told that they weren't men unless they stood up for the empire. And so they went and they fought and, and many died in foreign fields and were buried in foreign soil. And the weeping of their widows and mothers swept across oceans and would never reach them. But they went to fight, even though they didn't understand the languages and the countries that they went to fight. These are some soldiers walking through France. But they went to fight and they came back having been promised land, riches, recognition, gratitude, that if they fought for king and country, then this king and country may reward them, give them more of a say in the way that their, their country was run and how their lives would be. But they didn't come back to that at all. They came back to even more draconian laws, laws which put them in prison for speaking out against the Raj. Uh, anything written might have been, you know, we say Ben was talking about words and Eleanor was talking about words mattering. You could have just written criticism about the Raj in a newspaper and you would be thrown into jail for sedition, no trial, not even knowing what you're charged with. Uh, hard labour. And so the north of India, this, this part, the city of Amritsar in the north, was restive and had been restive for many days. Gandhi was trying to keep it uh, calm. He was trying to say that non-violent, passive uh, resistance was the way forward. But this was a place that was bubbling with resentment. There are two leaders who are in this city of Amritsar who are holding down the peace, two Indians called Satyapal and Kichlu, Gandhians. But they are getting such traction, such power, such enormous uh, support from the natives, that this man here, a man called Sir Michael O'Dwyer, cannot bear it. He's the Lieutenant Governor of India, and he hates these educated Indians, these upstarts who are arguing for some kind of say, because he does believe that there is a racial hierarchy, and people like him are at the top, and people like the Indians, well, they're right at the bottom. 
So he decides to have these two Gandhian leaders arrested. And what happens is Amritsar bursts into anger and rage. People think that these, these men have been arrested, that they're going to be hanged by morning. What will become of them? There are two days of immense violence in the city of Amritsar as they demand to have their people back. On April the 10th, this man is dispatched to Amritsar. April the 10th, 1919. His name is Rex Dyer. He's a brigadier general. He's never been to this city before. And he decides he's going to show them who is boss. He's disgusted with the fact that these natives don't salam their betters when they pass, when the Brits pass in the street. He has them dragged to one side and taught a lesson. He sends a drum proclamation out. He arrives hot and dusty on the 10th sends out a proclamation the next day saying if anybody gathers in groups or has political speeches, they will be guilty of sedition and they could be shot. Curfews are brought in. But this is delivered by drum proclamation. So Amritsar, a very noisy city, it's not easy to get the word out. But he's done enough, he thinks. April the 13th is the important day of this story and the day where this whole story of the patient assassin is, is underpinned. It's Vesakhi, the biggest festival in the north of India. Thousands of people from all over Punjab pour into this city. It's the harvest festival to give thanks at the Golden Temple. On this day, a political meeting is to be held by Gandhian supporters, so people who believe in non-violent resistance. And they choose this place that you can see, Jaliamala Bagh. It means the Garden of Jala. And to call it a garden is, is a mistake. It's a picture from 1919. It's more like scrubland, a very narrow entrance. Three men side by side would be hard pushed to get in um, unless they broke rank and went in uh, behind each other. But this is where the political meeting is going to be held. And Rex Dyer decides this is where he's going to make his stand and show the Indians just who is boss. He drives two armoured vehicles to this narrow entrance, 50 riflemen who are running behind him, Balochis and Gurkhas armed with rifles. Inside this place are 20,000 people, men, women and children, innocent civilians. Some, sure, are there for the political meeting. Some are there just to get away from the maelstrom that is Amritsar. They've gone to the Golden Temple. They're looking for somewhere to sit down and have a picnic. Why do I know that? Well, one of the reasons I know that is because my grandfather was there that day. A 19-year-old gangling youth with not a political bone in his body. So they're sitting, they're picnicking. Uh, Rex Dyer orders his men to go in. He orders them to take positions on this northern bank of the garden. People start scrabbling together, trying to get their things together. Surely these men are going to give some kind of order. They're going to tell us to, to leave. They're going to tell us to go. No order is given. The only voice that is heard is Rex Dyer's voice saying, fire. And his men fire. And fire. And fire. And fire. 1,650 bullets. And fire. People are running, screaming. They can't get out. There's only this one narrow entrance and fire. 1,650 bullets. People go to the walls. They try and scrabble over. They can't get over. And fire. One bullet can go through three people at a time. There are a mass of people hiding behind this one scrubby tree in the middle of the garden. There's splinters and gobbets of blood flying everywhere. And fire. He fires for 10 sustained minutes. It must feel like a lifetime to these people. And then, as soon as he comes, he leaves. Doesn't allow any medical help to come in. Doesn't let people take their bodies of loved ones out. 
and wailing sweeps across the city. The curfew means that there is a night of horror for everybody who is in that garden, and they are forced to hear the screaming of the wounded turn to wailing, to whimpering, and then to silence. And there is a legend that uh, an orphan, a similar age to my grandfather, is there until morning, and when the first light hits the earth, he picks up a clod of earth, rubs it against his head, and says, no matter how long it takes, no matter where it takes me, I'm going to find the men who did this, and I am going to kill them with as little mercy as they've shown my people. This is him, Udham Singh, the orphan of Amritsar, who's been saved by the city, brought up in an orphanage in this city. And he then embarks, as Eleanor quite rightly said, on a 20-year vendetta to try and become someone who can kill men this powerful. He is illiterate, he is the poorest of the poor, he is low caste, and nobody takes him seriously in India. So he travels around the world following the adage, my enemy's enemy is my friend. He goes to Africa and gets involved with anti-colonialists who hate the British as much as him. He goes to America and falls in with the Gather movement where they train him how to change his appearance, change his face, forge documents, get hold of money. He travels to Russia. He falls in with the Bolsheviks, all because this man and the next man must die. They must die with as little mercy as they have shown his people. I go into a lot of detail in the book about how this humble man transforms himself into this chap who in 1945, on March the 13th, has the guts to walk into a hall in Westminster, in the very heart of this city that I live in, a stone's throw. In fact, actually, let me be more accurate. Caxton Hall, where he decides to make his move, is as far away from the Houses of Parliament as Jellyamalabag is from the Golden Temple. There's a meeting of the great and good of the Raj. Udham Singh, who has now changed his name because words matter to Muhammad Singh Azad, a Muslim name, a Sikh name, Azad meaning freedom, stands at the back of the hall, bides his time, walks to the front and opens fire on that man, Sir Michael O'Dwyer. He fires two bullets straight through his heart. They travel at a near perfect parallel trajectory and he leaves him to bleed on the floor just as so many of his countrymen bled to death so many years before. Thank you. Wow. Thank, thank you, Anita. That, um, I mean, that's a story, of course, a tragedy that we grew up with in India and, and know of, but it's, uh, it's incredible that it hasn't, I mean, it's not something that's known um, in other parts of the world. And, and thank you so much for that book in which you, you not only unearth the story, but you take us on this on this journey, in a way of one man, but in a way we all are there, you know, looking for what what kind of justice follows acts like this. What yes. does retribution look like? That's kind of you. I mean, I, I I wanted to write about him, but also about the two men who perpetrated this. The man, Sir Michael, who was the brains, hearts, and guts of that entire operation in Punjab, and the man Rex Dyer, who fired the bullets because people are human beings and it is important to understand their motivations, their thoughts, so that we can avoid yeah. this kind of thing in the future. 
Yeah, and thank you for also, you know, I think we're, we started by saying this um, event is about language, but actually we see that language also means it's it's about empire, it's about colonialism, it's about hierarchies, it's about race. Thank you for making that connection. Thank you for being here tonight. I know, I know that your children are waiting. Uh, okay, got to put two tiny people to bed now. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I should just say too, obviously, as you can tell, uh, Anita is a brilliant storyteller. I the book is a fantastic read, and do if you've got time on your hands, pick it up. Absolutely, um, get a copy of the Patient Assassin. No. Yeah. Thank you, Anita. Thank you very much for asking me. I really am very honoured. Thank you. Well, and uh, I'm really delighted to have our our next speaker here. A wonderful friend, Sanjay Kak, is a filmmaker and writer. Um, he's really known for his award-winning documentary films, uh, Red Ant Dream, which was really about the idea of the revolutionary ideal in India, and Jashne Azadi, which is, translates to how we celebrate freedom, which is about the idea of freedom in Kashmir, one of the most militarized regions in the world. And also his work, uh, Words on Water, which was about the Narmada Dam, one of the giant dam projects in central India. But today he's speaking to us about language in a very different way, the language of photography. Um, he's curated, edited, and published a photo book called Witness, Nine Photographers in Kashmir from 1986 to 2016. Um, this is the work of photographers within Kashmir, which is a region out of which very little um, is, is transmitted. Even now, they're going into month seven, I think, of an internet lockdown, the longest internet lockdown in a democracy in the, in the history of, uh, you know, since we've had this medium. So it is a place out of which very little comes. And this book really broke that silence. It uh, was nominated uh, a New York Times Best Books of 2017. And one of the photographers featured there, Dar Yassin, uh, was the recipient of this year's Pulitzer Prize for journalism. But really more important than the accolades is what it did to question and show a different view than the state and force silence around Kashmir, whose people are actually, you know, in a lockdown within a lockdown. Um, Sanjay really describes how photography moves beyond testimony and, and actually maybe even becomes a contemporary art form, you know, to look at how do you do creative practice in, uh, in a zone like that. Um, Sanjay's family is actually from Kashmir and he describes it as a landscape that carries ancient burdens. And he's in Delhi right now, where it's just past midnight. So thank you, Sanjay, for staying up and being here with us. Please, everyone, a warm welcome for Sanjay Kak. Thank you, uh, Suresh. Uh, thank you, the Indian Summer Festival, and of course, the wonderful uh, 5 by 15 platform for bringing us all together. Um, in a sense, I, I was sort of gearing up to speak about uh, photography uh, as a kind of language and the language that also speaks to power. And um, I'm delighted that uh, the two people who've gone ahead of me have already kind of plowed up uh, the earth for us. Um, thank you, Suresh, for just reminding us that, uh, you know, at this time of, of the COVID pandemic, when all of us are so uh, overwrought with the kind of silence and the isolation of the past three months. And I think it's, um, it's important to remind everybody that for people in Kashmir, um, this uh, lockdown uh, in, in, in its present form 
is now uh, at least 10 months old and that it began on the 5th of August of 2019 when um, a very uh, long-standing legal and constitutional relationship between India and the people of Jammu and Kashmir was uh, abrogated uh, without explanation, without process, without procedure. And the most terrible um, uh, communications lockdown uh, was kind of imposed. And uh, I think it bears mention that in these 10 months, for the f first month and a half, there was no telephone, uh, there was no mobile phones, no uh, uh, landlines. For at least uh, more than five months, as Sirish pointed out, um, uh, people had no access to the internet, uh, which he rightly points out is the longest internet shutdown in a uh, democratic uh, country. Um, and uh, even today, 10 months down the line, what we have is a incredible uh, choking down of the internet to, um, uh, to 2G speeds, as they're called. So, for example, this conversation cannot take place with anybody in Kashmir. And this chokehold has, uh, uh, in a sense, when Ben Okri was speaking about I can't breathe, then there are various kinds of chokeholds that can be imposed on a people. And so in the time of the pandemic, for example, um, doctors cannot access uh, important uh, PDFs that they need to uh, look at medical protocols. Uh, students can't access their materials. Uh, conversations can't take place in the way that, the, that have helped the world to survive. So uh, it's just important to remember that. One other... Uh, uh, a uh, little uh, something to do with language, which I want to place before you. The book is called Witness, um, and it's up on the screen here. Um, the, the word in Urdu uh, for witness, the word shahid, um, uh, is a word that often carries two meanings. Um, there is the meaning of witness, but there is also the meaning of, of martyr. So the act of witnessing uh, would say in Urdu be called shahadat, but shahadat is also martyrdom. So there is this delightful ambiguity uh, in between these two words, and it's not just in Urdu, it's also in Persian, which is a language and a culture which deeply inflects Kashmir, and even in, in Arabic. So uh, uh, I just wanted to place this, this kind of this duality between uh, the act of witnessing and the act of martyrdom as being the kind of space that... Uh, uh, the, the book tries to travel through. So um, I'm going to show you four images by Merajuddin. The first, it's called uh, Baker's Assistant at a Security Check, Srinagar, 1992. This one is the assassination of a judge, uh, Nilkant Ganju, Srinagar, 1989. And Crackdown by Army Soldiers, Srinagar, 1993. And finally, uh, what's called aftermath of a siege, uh, uh, which followed uh, the destruction of the much revered uh, Sufi shrine of Trar Sharif uh, in 1989. Um, but the other photographers, uh, you know, they they carved their own language for themselves. And uh, so, for example, with uh, Javed Shah, who was a photographer with the Indian Express, this image called After a Fidain Attack. And again, um, his image, uh, militant killed in attack 
Srinagar 2004. Uh, I just want to remind you that these were uh, newspaper photographs and it says something about a certain time when newspapers uh, would be able to carry um, such difficult images. Uh, the third photographer is someone who uh, uh, already has been alluded to, Dar Yassin. Uh, his work uh, with the AP team in Kashmir uh, got him the Pulitzer this year. Uh, this one is called Police Take Cover, Srinagar 2015. And uh, this image called Funeral of a Militant, Pehlipura 2016. Um, Javed Dar, who follows, uh, is also an extraordinary photojournalist, but many of his um, most interesting pictures for me come out of the margins of his photojournalistic work. It's, it's sometimes uh, what he sees on the way or from news assignments and sometimes in the aftermath, such as this picture, uh, which is called After the Fire, uh, Frislan 2016. Um, Altaf Kadri, another uh, very exceptional photojournalist with a deeply, deeply uh, humane eye. This image uh, called uh, Aftermath of a Grenade Attack, Srinagar 2006. And this uh, very moving uh, uh, picture called Grave of a Militant Commander, Avalura 2008. Um, uh, also in the book is Shumit Deyal, a very, very skilled photographer. His work in Kashmir is mostly on film and on black and white. And um, much of it is actually an excavation of his own family's albums, uh, which he then mixes with what he shoots. So this image, for example, is a composite of an image he has shot with, uh, in this case, uh, not the front image uh, of a photograph from a family album, but the back of, a, of, of his grandfather's a photograph taken by his grandfather. Uh, we move on to Shokat Nanda, who uh, lives in the North Kashmir town of Baramulla. Um, uh, Shokat, uh, this uh, called Sakib on the Run, this image uh, from Baramulla 2014. It's part of a set of 10 or 12 images that he has taken about uh, these young men who can't stay at home during the day because the police are looking for them. So they inhabit, you know, abandoned buildings. And in this case, a, a graveyard on the outskirts of the city. Or this uh, uh, sort of uh, photojournalistic image, but extraordinary in its own ways called Protester with Slingshot, Srinagar 2010. Um, Said Sheryar is a very, very young photographer. Um, this extraordinary photograph uh, called F uh, Funeral of a Militant, uh, Tral 2016. Um, and then this very quirky image called Police Announcement, Srinagar 2016. And finally, um, I began with the work of Merajuddin, who was touching 60 when the book came out, and the book ends with the work of Azan Shah, who was not even 20 when the book came out two years ago. And Azan sees himself as a photographer of the city, um, shoots both in color and black and white. Uh, this image of the Fateh Kadal Bridge in Srinagar, 2015, and then uh, this one called Friday Protest, Srinagar, 2015. So uh, that's the book, uh, Witness. And um, I just wanted to say that uh, all nine photographers in this book, uh, as you would have gathered, uh, men, but uh, 
in the in the two years since the book came out, we now have some uh, remarkable young uh, women emerging, photojournalists, some of them, and photographers. And so, in a sense, that search for for a language uh, uh, through photography. Um, uh, it seems to uh, just, uh, you know, every year we see more and more people coming into the field and it's it's becoming, uh, they've sort of laid claim to photography as a kind of valid uh, uh, intervention. And uh, my time is nearly up, but I just want to leave one last idea with you, which is that, um, you know, the, the, the scholar, uh, and she writes on photography, Ariela Azule, talks about the, the civic contract of photography and uh, specifically alludes to this situation in which uh, the photographer, the subject and the audience are tied in in a kind of, uh, of pact which speaks to the outside world but also speaks to itself. And I find that uh, absolutely fascinating that in a place which had no tradition of photography uh, before the conflict uh, exploded 30 years ago, has, um, without any uh, assistance, there are no photography schools, uh, you know, has uh, kind of found itself in a place where now photography has become a language that Kashmiris claim for themselves. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sanjay. Thanks for also making that connection to language and that, and you know, that Shahid is both witness and martyr. That really struck and obviously, you know, even Ben was referring to that, and so was Anita. Witnesses, whether in the case of Jallianwala Bagh or in the case of the murder of George Floyd, have been what have you know recorded the moment, shared it, and to witness you first have to see. And so, thank you for the book that helps us to see see Kashmir. I think it's extraordinary, Sanjay, and it, it's so. Um... So important, and thank you for for bringing your voice uh, also to us. I think uh, what is happening in Kashmir and the weaponization of the internet is uh, on many levels highly disturbing. And uh, I know that some people are watching uh, from around the world, and some of those actors are not. Um, benevolent actors. I think that it is a very uh, chilling uh, example that is being set. And I think it's very, very important that uh, the voice of Kashmiris and the, the images of what is happening continue to be sent out into the world. So thank you for, for sharing that with us. Um, we've come to look at photography as a language. And I think I would like to now introduce our next speaker whose work is so entwined with language and whose art is so entwined with language, Marian Nicholson. Marian is an artist activist of the Muskamak Zawadanuk First Nations of the Pacific Northwest Coast. And she's trained both in her traditional Kwakwakiwak forms of culture, but she's also well at ease in contemporary museum-based practice. So in a way, she, she dances between those two worlds. She also has a PhD in linguistics and anthropology, um, looking at space as is expressed in her language and her culture. Um, so I think, you know, what's really interesting, I've been a huge fan of her work from afar, so it's, it's a particular thrill that she agreed to do this and, and is here with us. Um, everything she's done, some of them are monumental public art installations, 
Some of them are actually going back to her own lands and painting pictographs. So in a way, it is about art speaking from and also being spoken onto the land. And um, she's, of course, exhibited all over the world, the 17th Biennale of Sydney in Australia, the Vancouver Art Gallery, um, the National Museum of the American Indian in New York. And, and of course, her works uh, can be seen upon arrival or departure from Vancouver in the, in the airport. But I think, you know, the work that was most moving to me, and I'm so happy that she will speak about it today, is the work that of the place she came from and that she took back uh, to the lands that she comes from. So thank you so much, Marianne, for being here with us. And uh, please, a warm, warm welcome to Marianne Nicholson. Yes, hello, everyone. Um, I, I wanted to acknowledge the strength of the words of the speakers um, today. Um, I, I've been particularly moved by them. I, I find that the conversations that we are having today cut to the very root of what is in my heart and my, my spirit as a Muskmak uh, person um, who has struggled all of my life to uphold our way of being and our stories. Um, because the stories that were being overlaid on top of our stories and on top of our lives have been smothering us as peoples. Um, so I'm very grateful for all the voices that are rising up across the world to, to speak their truths and, and to tell the, the powerful, powerful stories that we all need to hear and share in order so that we can create the change that we need to see in, in the world. So I want to show, um, uh, start with an image we can show the first slide of a work that um, was done in 1921 in my home community of Kinkum Inlet. And um, my, my great-grandfather, his brothers, um, they were put in jail for practicing our traditions, our, our potlatching. And in 1921, there was a whole large group of Kwakwakiwak who were, who were jailed and basically just, just for giving a speech or for giving things away in our potlatch system. And as an act of resistance against that, um, um, my, my ancestors, my, my great-grandfather's family, um, they had this painting done at the mouth of the river and it, and it showed all these coppers, what we call aqua, which are symbols of wealth and of our traditional ways um, and relationship to the land. They had those painted on the rocks. And then they painted these cows because they had actually implicated the farmer who had um, annexed our territory at the mouth of the river uh, into selling them these cows, which they then um, uh, feasted on, which was basically part of the potlatch system, which was what, what they were being um, uh, put in jail for. And it's such a powerful, powerful image to grow up you, you go in and out of the community and you always pass this place and see this image. And this image, is, it operates like a language. And, and so I, I became very intrigued in, in how these images were telling stories. Um, and, and it was interesting because I ended up uh, in, in my dissertation work that I did, I was looking at language and the language and how 
Kwakwala, our language, uh, expresses the idea of space. And, and what I found through the, all of that study was that um, our, our bodies, our, the language that we speak, our traditional language is so attached to our physical bodies in space, in the land. And so I became full, came back full circle to be interested again in these images that are actually physically painted by the body on the land in order to help us to, to remember, to communicate. Um, so if we go to the next slide, um, this is an image of, of a work that I did in 1998. It's nearby, it's close to that uh, 1921 pictograph. Um, but I did this in 1998 because at that time, um, uh, the logging company was completely devastating our our valley, and they were basically they were removing all of the wood, and and they were wrecking havoc within that watershed. And our community was still there, even though they the government, the Canadian government, actively worked hard to remove us. We we really were stubborn and stayed there. And at that time, when I was living at home, I I had wanted to create something that no one could deny our presence because that's what was happening. The Canadian state was really denying our presence and erasing us. And so this, I wanted to create something that was so large and so visible that no one could deny our presence there. So this is a, this is a photograph of the painting that was done, the pictograph that was done in 1998. Or, um, but it, this was taken about a year ago, I guess. So if we go to the next image, this just basically gives you a sense of the scale of that image. But what's important to me in this image is that it actually shows what is on that painting. And that painting is our origin story. So it, it made manifest in the land in this very uh, physical way, um, very visible way, uh, our presence in the land from the very beginning. So this is our origin story, how we came to be in this place thousands and thousands of years ago. And this image validates that. So if we go to the next slide, our next image, this is an example of um, jumping into some of the contemporary based work and then approaching spaces such as art spaces, institutionalized spaces and trying to question um, and situate these discussions within those spaces and challenging um, the colonial um, foundations of those spaces. Um, by bringing forward the stories that are not or have been suppressed. And so th this is a work that was done in um, Nova Scotia uh, about a year ago. Um, but it, the title of it is um, The Sun Shines, The Rivers Flow, which is acknowledging that much of the treaty uh, language in Canada that is spoken about um, refers to as long as the sun shines and the rivers flow, and it refers to the indigenous rights uh, and title to their lands. Um, the problem being that the agreement was made with this statement in mind that it would be forever, it would be a relationship that would be forever, and that colonization has been attempting to erase that relationship. Um, and so this statement basically says, the sun is still shining, the rivers are still flowing. You know, we still have this relationship and we maintain this relationship and continue this relationship. Um, if we go to the next image, um, this is a work 
um, that was done in Surrey, and it's a light a light projection onto um, a, a really a large recreation center in that in that place, and and it was called the way in which it was given to us, and this is an animated animation, so it's a, a moving uh, moving image, and it and it I worked with some Kwantlen people whose land that is. Um, to develop the storyline that would talk about how their lands were annexed in the same way that my own nation's lands were annexed through colonization um, and removed from their jurisdiction, and to make this statement that they still hold that jurisdiction. Those lands are still there. They've never given them up. So this is a still from that animation that shows um, these in pictograph forms the story, but then as you move through the animation, it, it gives... Um, more history behind um, what really happened. And the problem that we have, particularly here in British Columbia, is that much of this history has been suppressed. Shockingly, it's it's taken me my whole life to bring these histories back to the foreground. And it's so badly needed for us to come together to, to make, to shine the, the light of these stories into people's hearts. Um, if we go to the next image, um, this is another work that is called um, The Harbinger of Catastrophe, and I really wanted to talk about um, the relationship of the physical and the ephemeral, um, the relationship of the body and space, and, and, and in a way express how for us, how we were taught in our traditional way to think of ourselves as part of this continuum, that really what was real was what was considered ephemeral in the outside world. You know, the outside world seems so obsessed with the physical body, physical things. Um, and yet what we were in our traditional understanding was that really our, our physicality was momentary, that we were part of this spiritual continuum from the ancient past into the far future, that we carried a responsibility to, re, to remember and to hold in our minds. And that as, in our, as our individual independent selves, we were not as significant as the way it is presented in the outside world. So, so I wanted to create this piece that would kind of challenge these ideas. And, um, and so, you know, you can walk through this physical space and, and the, the glass, the glass chest in the middle is very physically tangible and attractive, but really what makes that room have spirit is the light that casts the shadows on, onto the walls. And, and I was trying to anchor that within this idea that without these teachings, we're heading towards catastrophe as human beings in the world. Um, if we go to the next image, this is the one that actually is so significant to me um, because it was done with uh, my community. So um, this was done in uh, just last year. So um, what we did was I, I had done that large pictograph in 1998, but I had, I had done it on my own. And I mean, while, while it has tremendous meaning, I felt very strongly that I needed to facilitate a work that would bring in other voices other bodies, like to bring us together because that sense of community is what is 
the strength of our people. So this is an image of um, the finished work, but what we did as a community was we went out into our territories and we stayed together out there for a number of days and we created this work together. And I designed the main images in the center, those four coppers, those tawa, but the outside images were all done by community members. And we did, we did a, a period of workshops where people thought about what mattered to them and, and, and what they wanted to put on that as a message that would be carried forward to future generations. Um, if we go to the next slide, um, then this is basically people like the, the community members working together on, on the work. And then if we go to the next image, uh, here's one of our young people um, who is standing by the piece that he's created. And then if we go to the next image, which is the last image, this is, an Im this is something that we chose to do to put all of our hands together on the land. And to me, it is the most meaningful part of all of this is that we physically were present and now we have left that message as a story to tell amongst all of our people to our own descendants and also out to the world who is still trying to claim those lands and exploit those lands for profit against our own experience of what that place is and how we understand it. Thank you. Thank you, Marianne. That's incredible to see that work that you've been doing. And I think, I mean, I think a lot of people here know that um, Indigenous people are still amongst the most fiercest defenders of the land. Whenever you see a pro protest here, whenever you see um, a rallying cry to to save uh, the earth from from some sort of project that seeks to destroy it, indigenous people are often at the forefront of that. So that stewardship continues. That relationship is very much alive. And thank you for for sharing that again. And and again, it comes to you know when we when we think of language, it was so powerful that you saw that that image going in and out of your community, and then you you created in a way a conversation by by doing your own piece a hundred years later. I, I love too the, um, the idea of the, the materiality and the, the sort of the colonial obsession with the material. I think um, exactly as Suresh says, as we try and, and have to rethink our frameworks as, you know, in re response to a number of challenges, not least, you know, pandemics and, and climate change. I think um, it's, so, it's so useful and so um, enlightening to have, you know, the stories of, of uh, Aboriginal Canadians to, to help us, you know, illuminate potential other ways and and ways that might bring us forward. So thank you so much. Yeah, I think in a way I was going to say that the, my thanks mainly goes to the idea of a resurgence. Um, mm -hmm. and again, resurgence is a word that invokes a, a tidal, a watery force, um, and, the, and that your art is near water is, is also so fitting. So thank you for pointing to the resurgence of language um, and, and of culture. Thanks, Marianne. Take care. So, I mean, in speaking of language, our, our next speaker um, plays with that in interesting ways. I mean, a, a lot of us in India from various communities know the, you know, similar to what Marian was saying, know what it feels like to have your language either criminalized or silenced or um, 
you're made to feel ashamed of the language you grew up in. Um, and then English was upheld as sort of the, the ideal. Um, I really got to know Kritika Pandey from, I think, an article in Granta, maybe, Granta magazine. And then I read an interview with her in, in Scroll magazine where she said, I even dream in English. And English, of course, is that hybrid between Hindi and English, which has uh, resulted in a really dynamic, interesting language of its own. Um, Kritika is um, is an Indian writer from Jharkhand in, in India, Central India, but um, she's currently in Amherst, Massachusetts, where she's a graduate of the MFA program for poets and writers over there. So she's on the East Coast at the moment. Um, she's also the winner of this year's Commonwealth Short Story Prize, the 2020 prize, the Asia winner, uh, which counts for about a couple of billion people. Um, and um, she's, in a couple of days, we'll know if she's the global winner. So um, congrats, Kritika, on, on all these achievements. And um, Kritika speaks about the hybridity and fluidity of language, the Queen's English, and the connection between Bollywood and Shakespeare. Please welcome Kritika Pandey. Thank you so much, Sirish, um, Eleanor, and the entire team of uh, the Indian Summer Festival. I'd also like to thank um, all the speakers who, who went before me. Thank you for sharing um, such insightful, beautiful, and moving um, conversations um, that are so relevant for everyone around the world. And I'm deeply honored to be, to be part of this stellar set of, um, of speakers and thinkers. Um, my talk would be... Uh, really a personal um, sort of account of my engagement with the English language as uh, somebody who grew up in Jharkhand. When I was growing up in um, Ranchi, which is the capital of Jharkhand, it was a town with no traffic lights, um, only traffic policemen. And there was one store which um, sold cornflakes, which were all the rage, um, especially among young people. And my father got uh, out of bed at two in the morning to stand in queues outside um, the few English medium schools um, where my mother wanted me to study. Um, she, she would not settle for anything less. She would um, not have her daughter feel underconfident in the company of English speaking people. But these schools um, had a limited number of application forms uh, for admissions every year. Um, so my mother would pack breakfast for my father. Um, uh, just so he didn't have to exit a queue without getting a form, even if he got hungry. Um, and some years later, I would be ashamed of my mother and father when they attended parents-teachers' meetings in, at my school and mumbled a few English phrases mixed with Hindi um, as the teachers um, told them about what I'd accomplished, um, praised me, criticized me. At times, I would even confront my parents about it. Um, I would, I would tell them, why can't you speak proper English? Um, if I can learn it, I'd persist. Why can't you? Uh, nevertheless, every time we drove around town, my father slowed down his motorcycle as it approached a bookstore. Do you want to see if they have something new? He would ask me. I smelled every book before uh, turning it around and ruminating over the price. 450, I'd say, that is costly. But my father paid the shopkeeper before I made up my mind. Um, books are never costly, he said. Not having read any of the books, I lost myself in each night uh, because they were all written in English, not Hindi, uh, which was his primary language. 
Uh, later at night, I read in bed while he tied the four strings of the mosquito net in the four designated corners, one on the doorknob, the other on a nail sticking out of the wall, yet another on the window grill, and the fourth held down by a big jug of water on my study table before tucking the loose ends under my mattress to keep the malarial mosquitoes off me um, as I silently read away, away from him. This one time as a, as a troubled teenager, I wrote a letter to my mother, which she never read because she simply couldn't. Uh, I had used too many American slangs to express my teenage angst. Um, it was as if my parents were beginning to lose track of me and I of them. Um, so once, tired of my constant drama about her lack of English language skills, my mother told me, Tumhare admission interview mein to hum Wednesday ko Wednesday tak bole the, kaafi nahi hai. I had even pronounced Wednesday as Wednesday during your admission interview. Isn't that enough? She went on to explain then that my school's admission committee didn't accept kids whose parents couldn't speak at least functional English, which mine fortunately could. But many parents didn't even attend the admission interviews of their own kids. And so, um, and so when my mother informed me about what really went on uh, during the admission processes uh, at all of these English medium schools in, in Ranchi, I began to think about the relationship between the language of my formal education and the language of my upbringing. And for the first time, I admitted to my parents as well as to myself that um, every other day at school, I actually had to pay 20 or so rupees from my pocket money to my class teacher for fines for uh, talking in Hindi, outside of Hindi classes. And if my teacher was in a particularly bad mood, I would even have to write, I will only English, I will only talk in English, I will only talk in English a hundred times, sometimes even 500 times, and, and always in perfect cursive. Um, I was well in my early 20s when I learned about a man called Thomas Babington Macaulay. In 1835, when India was under British colonial regime, this man was working towards ensuring that English was the language of formal education in most leading Indian institutions. Um, he said that English is better worth knowing than Sanskrit or Arabic. Um, in other words, Macaulay was convinced that Western education was superior. Um, and therefore there was a need to produce a, a class of persons, Indian in blood and color, but English in taste, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. Um, these people would then help transmit um, the Western ideals to the rest of the Indian population. But cut to 2020, the recipe notebook in my kitchen has the following directions for cooking aloo bengan, which I'd taken down while my mother was dictating them to me before I left for uh, attending grad school in the United States. Warm tail, preferably mustard. Put panchforan or dosipin garlic cloves. Now put bengan and tomatoes and aloo chopped in chota chota pieces. Turmeric ek chutki add karo, salt swad anusar. No need to add pani, just cover it achche se. Make sure flame is dhima, not high. 50-20 minutes ke baad, it should be ready. Garnish with lemon or coriander. And if in case my aloo bangan doesn't taste exactly like the one my mother prepares, I listen to a Bollywood song that goes, Frastiao nahi mora, narbhasao nahi mora, 
एनी टाइम मुडवा को अपसेटाओ नहीं मोड़ा जो भी रोंगवा है उसे सेट राइट वा करो जी नहीं लूजिए जी होप थोड़ा फाइट वा करो जी this is a song full of hope and and resistance and one close look at the lyrics and i knew that this was neither hindi nor english nor bhojpuri or nagpuri but a heavy mix of all of these languages so as you can imagine every time i listen to the song i'm assured that thomas babington macaulay is turning in his grave he wanted to invent a new kind of indians but we ended up a whole new language uh, to to suit ourselves instead Shakespeare um is supposed to have added hundreds of new language uh, new words and phrases to the English language um that is what bollywood is attempting today and not self consciously or even necessarily inspired by this english playwright which means that bollywood is as shakespearean as shakespeare was bollywoodian when young people in india get together they use the english language in very imaginative ways the experimentation is at the level of grammar syntax spellings and more to take an example if you want to say she's awesome these are some variations of that sentence with mostly hindi influences but also that of some other indian languages and i'm going to read them out in proper english like i would if i was chilling with my friends awesome she is awesome only she is full awesome she is you have to say full like full awesome she is so awesome she is so must she is she is so much awesome she is full awesome she is full must she is full must only she is full awesome only in other words she is awesome she really is chinua chibe uh, one of my favorite writers says that the price a world language must be willing to pay is submission to many different kinds of views he wrote the english language will be able to carry the weight of my african experience but it will have to be a new english still in full communion with its ancestral home but altered to suit its new african surroundings he believes that for african writers giving up the english language as simply a post colonial baggage would be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater he emphasizes the role of the language in unifying africa african nations says the chibe were created by in the first place by the invention of the british which i hasten to add is not saying that the peoples comprising these nations were invented by the british i am an indian writer who writes in the english language which means that i owe it to my fraught post colonial context even though there really isn't a post to the colonial to engage with the english language and culture on my own terms at school we were taught that shakespeare compared a woman's beauty to a summer's day as we sat in muggy classrooms sweating all over because indian summers are scorching tropical conditions but now i have the opportunity to create the literature of my people in a version of english that could confound shakespeare himself and i'm up for that task or dare i say i'm full ready for the task work thank you Thanks Krithika I'm sure you're full ready for that taskwa um and I think that was full awesome <laughs> super only and um yeah thanks uh, I love that line you just threw in there there's no post in post colonial yeah uh-huh uh yeah as we would say in my kannada slang sakat um 
Brad. Yeah, um, congratulations. Um, good luck. In, we'll, we'll watch for you in the, in the next three days when the Commonwealth Pri Global Prize is announced. Uh, congratulations on winning the Asia Prize already. And thanks again for taking us through a short introduction to English. I look forward to the full primer sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Take you, Katika. Thank you. So um, it's left to me to uh, introduce our final speaker for the evening. Um, and having had this wonderful tour of language and its meaning and uh, use and misuse, it, uh, it is really wonderful to have Aza Raskin with us. Aza is the co-founder of a project called the Earth Species Project. It's an open source not-for-profit that's dedicated to decoding animal communication. But uh, that is just one feather in his many feathered caps. He is also co-founder of the very influential uh, and, and groundbreaking Center for Humane Technology. He's also co-hosts a very popular podcast called Your Undivided Attention. Um, Aza has also founded three companies that he has led from founding to acquisition. He's a co-chairing member of the World Economic Forum's AI Global Council. He um, is a mathematician by training and also knows a thing or two about dark matter physics, which I'm sure comes really in handy. Um, but we're really, really delighted that you could be with us, Aza. I'm really thrilled that we are turning our final attention to those whose language we do not understand and whose uh, existence is so crucial to our continued well-being uh, as human animals. Um, so Aza, over to you and um, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much, Eleanor. That's a beautiful introduction, and it's Tracy. It's, it's nice to finally like see you, um, and it is a true privilege to get to share. Well, if not a stage, then pixels uh, with uh, Kritika and Marianne and Sanjay, um, Ben and Anita. Um, something I was reflecting on during uh, their conversations is that. Language is a particularly remarkable tool that changes the lens by which the mind sees. And when you swap language, you swap the lens by which you see everything. You know, the map is not the territory and language is not reality, but it's a model of reality. And the language that you use terraforms reality. So the map is not the territory, but the map terraforms the territory and creates this incredible cyclic loop um, by which we see the world. And I think it's that, it's the idea that if you can swap language, you swap the lens by which your mind sees the world, which gets to the heart of something that I've found true in my own life, but I think we all experience this. Um, and that is that shifts in perspective can change everything. Um, it's that nothing has changed and yet everything is different. Um, and this particular story around translating animal communication, discovering animal language, started, at least for me, uh, in 2013. The history of this goes back uh, centuries, but for me, it started in 2013 when I heard an NPR piece about these incredible monkeys, um, gelato monkeys, in the Ethiopian highlands. And they're known to have one of the largest vocabularies of any primate. 
um, the researchers that work with them swear that the monkeys are talking about them behind their backs. Um, the problem is, is there just wasn't enough data um, to be able to translate. And the thought was like, okay, but if we could, if we could go out and put microphones in the field, um, a huge microphone array, capture an entire species at once um, and make a, a, a sort of a digital footprint, could we translate their language? And in 2013, the answer was no, because in order to translate a language, you have to have examples of translation, but with animals, you don't have that. And so every year would return, 2013 was a possible no, 2014 was a possible no, 2015, no. But something remarkable changed in 2017. Um, in 2017, back to back, October 30th and October 31st, two different papers independently discovered different techniques to do the same thing. And that was to translate languages without any examples of how to translate, without any key, without any Rosetta Stone. And the process is actually remarkably simple. Um, it was also in 2013 um, that researchers discovered that you could build a shape that represents language. Think of it as sort of a galaxy where every star is a word. And actually right behind me here, um, you can't see it super well, but this is actually the shape of English, the top 10,000 most spoken words. Um, and in high resolution, you can really see uh, the points move around. What's interesting about this shape is that points that mean similar things are placed near each other. Um, so fast and faster are sort of near each other. Dog and cat are somewhat near each other, but cat and lion are even closer together. Um, and what's cool about this shape is that it's not just words that mean similar things are near each other. It's that the relationship between concepts, between words, is represented geometrically, which is to say, you know, king is to man as woman is to queen, as an analogy. So analogies have geometric forms. So king is the same distance and direction to man as woman is to queen. And so you can actually just do king minus man is this distance and direction. You add it to, uh, to queen and that just, or woman, and that just equals woman. Um, there's a direction in here for what I call pretentiousness. And that's just book is to tome as say smelly is to malodorous. Uh, and so you can just do book minus tome, that's pretentious direction, you add it to smelly and equals malodorous. It's a really beautiful and, and sort of amazing thing. And it all stems from actually a 1958 um, realization from J.R. Firth, who is a, a, British, uh, uh, a British linguist. And he said, you shall know a word by the company that it keeps. Um, and that's how these models are built up. They're essentially looking at the context of every word. The computer doesn't understand the word, but it understands the words that are near it. And from that out pops the shape. Okay, so we have the shape for Japanese. We have the shape for German. We have the shape for English. What do you do then? And here is the really, really surprising thing. It couldn't just be the case that you could take English and rotate it on top of Chinese and that they would fit because the cultures are different. The context is different. They History is different. We see the world in different ways. And yet, when researchers tried it, the two shapes lined up. Not perfectly. Words mean slightly different things. But the relationships between things are similar enough that the shapes match up. And the point which is dog in English overlaps to the point which is dog in Chinese. And that doesn't work for just English and Chinese. 
but for Japanese and for Esperanto and for Finnish and for Turkish, almost all human languages seem to share a kind of universal shape. And I just think that is incredibly profound and deeply surprising. It's not something I think any one of us would have expected before we tried it out. Because when we look at each other, we see our differences, our differences in contexts and histories. And what deep learning is teaching us in a way is to see the similarities underlying us all. What's interesting is you can go even further. There's a recent study um, where they put people into fMRIs, brain scanners. They had them look at objects, they knew what the objects were, and then they would scan their, their visual cortex. And they learned a mapping. That is to say, from the scan, they could predict, they could reconstruct what the person was seeing. And that already is sort of surprising because we're, we're able to look into side, inside someone's mind and extract what they're seeing. Um, but what's even weirder is that the mapping that worked for me would work for you, would work for someone else. There's something universal about this mapping. And what's really intriguing is, and no one's tried this yet, can we map language into the space, which is uh, what we see in our brains? Is there a correspondence? We, we don't know, but it's, it's very, very intriguing. Um, all right, so one way of thinking about why this works is this. Language is sort of like a style. Right? Like imagine French is like pointillism. And maybe, I know German is like brutalism. Hopefully I won't get in trouble for any of these things. Um, the way they, the, the, the types of strokes of the paintbrush, the colors they use, very different. And yet when you step back and you look at the pictures and paintillism and brutalism, you can sort of see the similarities because both paintings are mapping sort of, they, they keep consistency, the internal relationships of the world that they're painting. And what deep learning is learning how to do and what these shaped rotations are learning how to do is to translate between the styles, keeping the relationships inside of every worldview the same. And this really gets to the heart of another of my favorite parts of language, which is metaphor. Um, what is a metaphor? Sort of, a, it's a hard thing to think through. Um, but I think the metaphor is actually very simple. It is just a map that preserves relationships, right? It lets you understand something you can't see with something that you can by mapping the relationships and the thing you can see to the thing that you can't. Um, and once you understand metaphors in this way, a lot opens up, at least for me. Um, an example is math, uh, geometry. Klein, a uh, famous uh, geometer and also uh, progenitor of uh, quantum, quantum theory, he described geometry as the mapping of space to itself that preserves angles. That's it. That's all of geometry. Um, it's a metaphor of space to itself. What is translation? Translation is a map that preserves connotations, right? It's a map that preserves analogies. And that gets to one of, I think, one of the, the most beautiful um, sort of summarization of, of all of my favorite terms, which is that translation is a metaphor that preserves analogies. I just think that's so cool. And we can finally understand when we rotate one language onto another to translate between the two, that is a computational metaphor. So 
we've sort of gone way out. We'll come back in. Why are we so excited about the ability to transit between languages without a key, without a Rosetta Stone? It's because for the first time we can start to ask, well, if we can build the shape for human language, we can definitely build the shape for animal communication. And then the question becomes, what shape is it? Does it fit anywhere in the universal human meaning shape? Maybe. Or does it actually match better to human emotions and the facial gestures that people make? Or maybe it maps better to human music. Or maybe it looks more like images or 3D models. We don't know, but we're on the cusp of finding out. So in the end, I think that these kinds of tools are going to be the telescope times the microscope of our era because they let us see at greater granularity we've ever seen before and also with greater scope than we've ever seen before. Um, and the telescope, right, it fundamentally shifted human perspective and human identity. It let us look out at the patterns of the universe and what it taught us is that Earth was not at the center. I think these tools are the telescope of our era, but they're gonna be a kind of internal looking. They're gonna let us look at the patterns of the universe and what we're gonna discover is that humanity is not at the center of the universe. And that kind of humility and interdependence is what I think we all need to be able to survive. Thank you. Azza, how wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, that's such a, a stimulating, wild ride of a, a talk and concepts. And you know what, I just, I am so moved by the, the scale of your ambition, but mm. also the idea that, you know, what we can get so bogged down in, in feeling, in identifying difference actually on a geographical sort of map is, is, uh, is the same. So I, and, um, good luck with, tell us anyway, what's the, what's the time horizon for, for, um, decoding animal language. Is there is there one? Really hard to say. We're walking off fundamentally into the unknown. Um, we're already making substantial progress now. Um, so I'm hesitant to give like a, a timeline. Um, but one of the things I'm most excited about is that we're building this library, the Earth Species Library. And it just starts to collect many, many, many different uh, of the cultures and um, behaviors, communications of the species of Earth. And the reason why I think this is so cool is that science is really fundamentally a comparative kind of game. And this lets us look at the shape of, say, uh, sperm whale to understand, uh, humpback whale to understand, dolphin to understand, orca to understand, bat to understand. And so you can start to see how the whole thing starts to create this huge set of contexts with which you compare one to the other. Every language becomes a key to decode the lock of every other language. Um, Everything is a metaphor for everything else. So it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know the timeline, but um, I think much sooner than we expect. I, I, as I love that all the while the English language is swirling behind you. <laughs> yes. I'll forever keep the image of you as astronomer of language. Um, much good luck with, um, with the galaxies you're off to discover. And thank you so much for, for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me, Trish. Yeah, can, uh, please, everyone, check out Earth Species and um, all of Aza's other projects. It's quite incredible what he's been doing. Well, Eleanor, um, that just leaves us. That was... Ah, my <laughs> God, 
how much stimulation has that been? <laughs> um, it's always it's always a thrill and always an honor to get to spend time with um, incredible people with extraordinary thoughts and doing amazing things. And yeah. uh, this evening has been no uh, well. This evening morning for you um, has been no exception. What what amazing people have joined us and given us their thoughts and very, very profound. I felt like there was a lot to think about and reflect yeah. upon and yeah. um, And I hope, yeah, in a way, tools for the for the world we are trying to make sense of now, you know, in, in so many ways. So yeah, I'm I'm glad we were able to do this together, um, you know, given all the distance and uh, let's let's chat more as, as time goes on. I, I really enjoyed doing this and I'd like to thank everyone for being here tonight. Um, really so much for joining us on this journey. And again, if um, those of you who've supported the festival, thank you for doing so. If others found this event of value and are able to make a donation, that would be um, that would really be appreciated to keep us going. Eleanor, um, in County Cork, it's almost... <laughs> Night time, so um, very good night. And thanks again. I mean, really, 5 by 15, what you co-founded has been such an incredible way of bringing together some really powerful thinkers and speakers. So thank you for doing that and for always uh, being such a lovely partner. We're just the vehicle. Thank you, Suresh. And congratulations on your 10th anniversary. That's fantastic. And also for keeping the flame alive in these very uncertain times for us uh, event organizers, of course, but of, of course to everyone listening in too. So thank you. Also, um, I would just like to ask everyone in the audience, please do share um, the, the, the insights, the, the thoughts that you've, you've gathered and do um, share it widely on, on, you know, your media circles and uh, social media. Um, because it is so important, I think, that we spread these voices so that they're heard uh, mm -hmm. as widely as possible. For sure. And a big shout out to the Indian summer team and the tech team. This has been quite something to pull together. So, yeah. They've done an amazing job. <laughs> All right, everyone. Take good care. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah. Bye. Bye.